If you would uh, take your Bibles, please, and open to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Last Sunday was the last Sunday of 2017, and we looked at the background to and the context for 1 Samuel 7:12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Today is the first Sunday of 2018. I want us to review the whole matter of Ebenezer and then look at what happened afterwards. The story continues. Our text today, there's one verse, it'll be 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 23, when Samuel says, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. So to review, and many of you were not here last week, so this isn't a review as much as sort of hearing it for the first time. The story begins in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. It's a story of a woman named Hannah who cannot have children. She prays to the Lord and makes a vow that if the Lord will give her a son, she will give the son back to the Lord. We read, and she made a vow, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. That is to say he would be a Nazarite, as was the case with Samson. She bears a son, Samuel, uh, which means heard of God, and Hannah fulfills her vow. She takes him to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, and that's where he grows up. Eli is in charge of the tabernacle, along with his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that he fails to rein in, even though he was warned by a prophet that something, that judgment would come on them. Uh, Sometime later, uh, there was a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And on the first day of battle, 4,000 Israelites were killed. In 1 Samuel 4.3 we read, When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? You know, why, why, did, why did God let us lose? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. As I mentioned last Sunday, we should recognize this is something horrible that they were thinking to do. And in fact, they did do. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. Only the high priest was to see it once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies. Now it is being treated as a good luck charm. Let us take it, they say. Not, the, not God, not he, but it. Let us take it with us and we will have victory. What happens? They go into battle and the Israelites are routed. 30,000 were killed. And the Philistines capture the ark. On that day, Hophni and Phinehas are killed, and their father Eli, who had been warned, when he hears the news, falls off his chair and breaks his neck, and he dies as well. Initially overjoyed at their victory over Israel and the fact that they captured what they believed to be Israel's God, uh, the Philistines, after seven months, decide they need to get rid of this thing. The Ark of the Covenant, wherever it goes, there is disaster, there, uh, there are tumors, the people are sick, and so they want to send it back. But they want to do so in a devious way where they can say, well, we, we did our best. So they say, let's get two cows that have just given birth, 
So they're still nursing the calves, obviously still attached to them. Let's put yokes on them. Well, cows were never used in that way. And then we'll put the ark on the cart, and then we'll just see what happens. Uh, it's unlikely that it would go into Israelite territory. It'd probably stay close to home where their calves are. But in fact, it heads straight for Israel, for the town of Beth Shemesh. We read, then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. That they're moving all the way, obviously missing their calves. They did not turn to the left or to the right. The people of Beth Shemesh are overjoyed. The Ark of the Covenant has come back. And they sacrifice the two cows. They use the cart as the wood and they worship God. But they do something else. Some of the men peek into the Ark of the Covenant. And as a result, there is a massacre that occurs. The people mourn because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beshemus ask, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? So they decided to send, they decided to send it elsewhere, to send it to Kiriath-Jerim, which is north-northwest of Jerusalem. And at the beginning of chapter 7, which is what we looked at last week, so the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. We saw last Sunday that Israel acted toward God wrongly in four ways. First of all, they treated him as a good luck charm. Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. Secondly, it was an, ark, it was an object of curiosity. They wanted to peek in. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? Thirdly, they set him aside because they're afraid. Who can stand in the presence of God? Let's just, let's just sit him over there. And, and for 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant is in the house of Abinadab. But something else we saw, and that is they did not treat God as someone who deals with day-to-day affairs, but as a transcendent God. And we see this because while they're worshiping God, they're also worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, the male and female gods of fertility uh, of that time. So they are mourning. They sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. So I mentioned last week, I, I don't know about you, but I find this really disturbing. That, in fact, you have the people of God worshipping the true God and worshipping false gods at the same time. Why are they seeking after God when, in fact, they already have gods that they worship? Well, these two gods uh, are the gods of fertility. And... Their worship usually involved sexual immorality that was intended to sort of prompt Baal and Ashtoreth to get the crops to grow, to get the animals to reproduce. But as I said last week, it's also a type of almost pre-scientific formula that if you want to have the desired effect, this is what you do. Um, Again, how could they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Baal and Ashtoreth as well? And why are they seeking after the Lord when they already have gods at home? We are made in the image of a personal God. 
but we find ourselves drawn to impersonality. We prefer formulas rather than personal relationships. God has called us to be in a relationship with him, but we prefer a set of formulas. We reject, if you wish, um, the idea that he is with us day by day. Yeah, we'll worship him as the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that, but when it comes to the day-to-day things, I think we're a bit skeptical. We prefer something that requires no personal investment or relationship. This is, I think, what drives most people in this country today and even in the church. That if somehow we can come up with a formula to get what we want, then that's what we're going to follow. All the while claiming that we worship the true God. I I mentioned this last week that people look to God for the transcendent, but they look to other things for the eminent, the day-to-day things. So yes, we'll pray to God, but you know the day-to-day things, we have formulas, we have rituals, maybe even superstitions, ways to get things done. Because if you think about it, with prayer, if we pray to God, we believe that God will always answer our prayers. But his answer might be yes, it might be no, it might be let's wait a while. And we don't want that. We want a system whereby when I pray, I get what I want. There are any number of books written by Christians who will tell you precisely how to get what you want from God. This is, this is Baalism. This is formulaic. This is not a personal relationship. But even outside the church, people will tell us, yes, you can pray, but then these are the steps you need to take in order to get the things that you want. Transcendent, eminent, but also, as I mentioned last week, ultimate. God is the ultimate reality, but then penultimate. You know, before we get to the ultimate, that's how I get through the day and the week and the month and the year. But what happens is, we can say we worship the true God, transcendent, ultimate, but when these things are the things that direct our actions, they become the ultimate. They become the transcendent. They become the things that we worship. We find it in Israel, and I think we find it among God's people today. After 20 years, Israel realized something is wrong. They've been playing this game of worshiping God, but worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. And they go to Samuel and he tells them, you need to get rid of these gods. So they all gather together at Mizpah and they fast, both with food and water. We saw this last week. They draw water and pour it on the ground. We're not going to drink. They don't eat. And they confess, we have sinned against the Lord. And immediately there's a test. Okay, let's see. Are you really committed to God? Because the Philistines are like, wait a minute. They're all at Mizpah. Let's get them there. One shot, we can sort of wipe them out. They go to Samuel and they say, pray to the Lord that the Lord would deliver us. What if the Lord doesn't deliver them? Will they try to come up with some formula, political solution? But they don't do that. They go to Samuel and they ask Samuel to pray for them. Samuel prays and God delivers them miraculously. Uh, Through thunder, he puts the Philistines uh, to rout. He routes them. And we find out that the Lord God Almighty is both transcendent and eminent. He is at work in every moment of our lives. 
And it is at this point that Samuel takes a rock and calls it Ebenezer. Ebenezer means literally rock of help, a stone of help. And he says, thus far, the Lord has helped us. What does that mean, thus far? Is he only talking about the victory at Mizpah or the, over the Philistines? If that's the only time the Lord has been with us, where was he all the rest of the time? I would argue he was always there. He was always there. From the beginning of 1 Samuel, because that's where the book begins, but even beyond that, but we'll stay in 1 Samuel, where you have a barren woman who cannot have a son. And she prays to God and God gives her a son. God is Ebenezer. When you have a high priest who will not discipline his wicked sons, God is there. When Israel is defeated in battle, when the ark is captured by the Philistines, when it is brought back and then sort of set aside for 20 years, the Lord is there with his people. All of these. See, I think we may make the mistake of imagining that when God helps us in response to our prayers, then we can say, Ebenezer, yeah, God help me in this situation. Well, what's he been doing the rest of the time? Well, he's always there and he's always been helping us. Even when we desperately want something, like Hannah. Even when we treat God like a good luck charm, like the Israelites. Even when we view him as an object of curiosity, like the men of Bethshemesh. Something to be studied rather than someone to be worshipped. Even when we set him aside, out of the way, just because God is scary and... We, we, have to, we need to live our lives and we just set him aside for a bit. Even when we worship him as the transcendent God, but not as the God of day-to-day things, God has been there and has been helping us. Someone wisely pointed out to me last week after the service that when we pray for something, let's say for safety, and then we arrive at our destination safely, we say, we could say, Ebenezer, God has been with us. We arrive safely. But what about when you jump in the car and you need to drive somewhere and you forget to pray or you're just so preoccupied you don't think to do that or perhaps even you don't think it's worthwhile to pray and you arrive at your destination safely. Would we say Ebenezer? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the story of Israel that we find is even in their unfaithfulness, God is there with them. We need to recognize that the Lord is the Lord God Almighty, that he has been, is, and will be with us every step of the way. In the words of Paul to the Colossians, for he, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creations, for by him were all things created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So where do we go from here? We have Ebenezer, we've got the stone, this rock, the stone of help. 
Where do we go from here? Well, at the end of chapter 7, if you look at the last three verses, Samuel continues his, uh, his uh, task, his calling as a judge over Israel. And he makes a circuit. He, he travels uh, like circuit preachers used to, or circuit judges. He made his rounds every year. His hometown was Ramah. And so they lived happily ever after, right? Not quite. In the very next chapter, we read, and if you want to look at that, First uh, Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. That's in the south of Israel. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Just a side note, I find it fascinating that Eli did not manage his two wicked sons and we find that Samuel does not manage his two sons who are perverting justice and accepting bribes. Well, the result is that Israel decides we want to be like everybody else. We don't like this, this, this judicial system we have of judges. We want a monarchy. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. Simply put, their solution to their problem is political. Eminent, penultimate, not transcendent, not ultimate. They are looking for a political situation. In the place of false gods, they could say, well, we don't worship Baal or Ashtoreth anymore. No. Instead, you are looking to politics to solve your problems. They want a political leader. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Continues in verse number nine. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. And then he paints not a pretty picture. That, in fact, the king will take your sons to serve in the military and to work in the fields, will take your daughters to, make, uh, to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, one-tenth of your harvest, um, the, re- the best of your livestock. And then he closes with these words, chilling words, in verses 17 and 18. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. You'll be enslaved. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. Boy, that should have just, this expression goes, put the fear of God into them to recognize if you go down this path, the time will come when you will call out to God, and God won't listen to you. He will not answer you. And so, what did the people say? People refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They don't want God. 
they want the king. Yeah, God's up in heaven, that's great, but we need somebody here to manage the store, to run things. We want a king who will lead us. I don't know that the Israelites recognized that they were doing this. I don't think in their minds they ever thought for a moment, oh, we are rejecting Jehovah and we're looking to a king. I don't think they saw it that way at all. We are the people of God. And we want a king. It's not either or for them, it's both and. To have God and to have a king. So Samuel goes back to the Lord and he tells them, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And the chapters that follow we have the story of the selection of the first king of Israel, a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Saul. Now we come to the chapter in which our text is found, chapter 12. It is Samuel's farewell speech. The end of chapter 11, the last verse, so all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as a king, or as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul, and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So Israel has embraced Saul as their king. So it would seem that Samuel's out of a job. He was the judge, but now there's a king. And as he's leaving, as he's retiring, if you wish, he wants to make it clear that he did not cheat anybody. He did not take any bribes. The first five verses... Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king before you, or a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, I replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hands. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. And now he gives basically a valedictory speech. It's a sermon. He's preaching. But it's also a history lesson, because he wants to warn the people that they need to live in a particular way, to go down a particular path. Um, by the way, uh, for Samuel, he doesn't. This isn't just a. You guys say I didn't cheat you. It's like in the presence of God, that God is witness that I have not cheated anyone. So, verse number six. Then Samuel said to the people, "It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt." It's like, okay, now we're going way back, going back to the Exodus. Now then stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord, their God. So he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam. This is Gideon's name because he contends with Baal. Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you live securely. 
But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. And here now we're told something we weren't told earlier. Why did they suddenly decide they want a king? Because there was a crisis. In a crisis situation, instead of turning to God, they decide a political solution is the way to go. The Ammonites are coming against them, and who's going to lead us into battle? Well, God did a pretty good job against the Philistines, but no, no, no. They want a king who will lead them into battle. Rather than trusting in God to deliver them, as he had done before, they want a king. Verse 13, Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, great, God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your father's. See, at this point, I, I can't help but imagine that there's some skeptical people in the audience who are like, yeah, 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 my mom and dad used to tell me these stories about, you know, way, way back in the day, once upon a time, that they almost take on the, the guise of fairy tales. They're not sure that they actually believe it. So Samuel drives his point home. Look at verse 16. Now then stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people said People all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. (laughs) He doesn't pull back. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. The call here is to follow God rather than trusting in something or someone, a king, someone else. And trusting means serving. Now we come to our text. Verse 23. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I will teach you the way that is good and right, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. What are you supposed to do with people who consistently play both sides of the fence if you wish. That they say they worship a transcendent God, but in the day-to-day things they worship false gods, eminent gods. This is the golden calf all over again. They do a golden calf, but they put the name of God on it. This is who delivered us. So yeah, transcendent, but we need something tangible, something we can see, something that we can manage and even manipulate. What are you supposed to do for with such people? Well, if you listen to Samuel, we are to pray. 
And in fact, Samuel says, basically, I'm retiring, but I'm not going to sin against the Lord, interestingly not, not against you, against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Far be it from me that I should sin against you. No. Far be it that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. In the passages that we saw last Sunday and today, we find approaches and views of God that remain to this day. God is a good luck charm. And oftentimes I think this is seen more in vocabulary and our speech, thinking that the name of God will somehow be powerful to give us what we want. God is an object of curiosity. Let's study theology. Let's study God so we can dissect him. God is someone who might be conveniently put aside. God who is transcendent, yes, that's wonderful, but he's very far away. He's not present with us in our everyday lives. And we find to be true what Calvin said centuries ago, that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart, the human mind is always manufacturing things to help us get through the days. It might be daydreaming, it might be superstition, some type of solution formula that somehow will allow me to survive this day and get to the next. We look to something other than God to help us survive. And living as we do in a secular age, the tendency is not to look for spiritual idols, interestingly enough, but I would argue particularly now for political idols, for political solutions. In our present political situation in this country, in which I would say in the last two years we have heard so much vitriol and rancor, bitter, deep-seated ill will. I had to write that down. I don't know if I'd remember it. But on every side, both sides, pro and con. And the one thing that has become clearer and clearer to me as I try to work through the emotional fog in my own life, is that both sides are looking to politics as the solution to our problems. And this is not only true of unbelievers, but of those who call themselves the people of God. So in a real way, we're like Israel. Yeah, we come together on Sunday here at Melrose and we worship the transcendent God, but through the week we're looking for some type of solution and believe that the solution is political. That somehow our salvation, uh, you know, to make sure we're not taxed too much, to make sure that we have security, all these different things, lies in the political establishment. And I can't help but wonder if in the place of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have looked to politics. We have put our hope, our trust, and whatever you hope in and trust, that's what you serve. It's become politics. What can be done? What do we find from Samuel? What do we find in our text? We are to pray. We are to pray for one another. We are to pray for our country, for those who are leaders. But above all, I think we should pray and ask that God would open our eyes to see that he is with us every step of the way. He is Ebenezer every day. Does that mean everything will go well? That things will be easy? Not at all. Hannah couldn't have a child. She cried to the Lord. Uh, 
Israel's at Mizpah. They cry to the Lord. In both situations, the Lord delivered them. But in between, we have a lot of people dying. We have a lot of discomfort, uh, a lot of trouble. When Nahash the Ammonite came, Israel's like, we've got to have a king. That is the solution. And when we look at the wickedness that covers this land, we're like, Supreme Court, we've got to get those judges in there. We've got to get a better president. We've got to have a better governor, all these things. And what we are doing is precisely well, what God said Israel had been doing ever since the Exodus, ever since they left Egypt. They have been playing both sides. God and other gods. It's interesting that people put their confidence in a political solution and at the same time are very skeptical of, do you trust politicians? Does the average American trust politicians? Not really. And yet, that seems to be where the solution is, where salvation lies. Ebenezer is sort of in the middle of what we studied last week and today. But God as our help is always there. In the past, in the present, and in the future. And as God's people, we need to recognize that. And as we come into 2018, uh, we will face crises. We will face difficulties. By God's grace, let's pray for one another and pray that we won't do the two God or the, you know, the true God and false gods but we will look to him and to him alone. And as Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by not praying for you. Not just against you, but against the Lord. When we look to something other than the Lord as our help, then we are in serious trouble. Let's pray together. In so many ways, our Father, we are double-minded double-hearted. We do love you. And we've come together to worship you. And yet at the same time, we find it so difficult to be single-minded. We look to other things, perhaps other people, formulas, systems that will somehow get us the things that we want. And interestingly, what we want tends to be an an easier life. Not being closer to you, but to sort of have a hassle-free existence. You've put us here to learn. Like with Adam and Eve, we are to learn to trust you and to obey you. And that what you tell us is right. We acknowledge our frailty. We acknowledge our sinfulness. By your grace and your spirit, draw us to yourself. And may we trust you and look to you. We thank you for scripture. These stories which remind us that we are not alone in this, that Those who came before us suffer from the same frailties, the tendencies to worship you while hanging on to false gods. By your spirit, may we take this to heart.
We pray for Tess, who will be traveling this next week, that you would give her safety. She goes back to the Philippines for Grant as he goes back to D.C. to continue his education. We're grateful that Ransom is with us today and ask that you would continue to touch him and heal him. For the prayer requests that were mentioned earlier, for Ruth, for Doug Jones, all of these we commit to you. May we remember to pray for one another because you are the Lord God Almighty. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.